I want to begin with 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, from the prophet at the time. He said, sanctify the Lord in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is, with, that is in you. That is a phenomenal concept. Be ready always to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Can you say, this is what I believe, and this is why I believe it? I think there is real power, if I push you a little bit, to say, can you give me the reason you believe? I want you to be able to say, this is what I believe, and clearly explain it. But then be able to say, this is why I believe it. If you do not have a why behind the what, you get pushed hard enough, you'll walk away. But if you can say, here's why, here's why I believe. Now, I, I have found that C.S. Lewis fans come in all sorts of flavors. And most people who love C.S. Lewis love him just because his words resonate with them. I love to quote C.S. Lewis. And I do too. I love to quote C.S. Lewis. He said it eloquently. But he is so much deeper than the quotable Lewis. I think there are two moments. If you're, I would invite you to come to know the C.S. Lewis that converted from atheism to Christianity. Know his story of his conversion. And then come to know the C.S. Lewis who lost his wife and questioned everything. When his wife died, it shattered his world. And if you don't have your faith tested, you don't know how strong it is. And so to study C.S. Lewis, Lewis's conversion, not just to religion, but to Christianity. And his defense... He basically says, here is the reason I'm a Christian. Here is the reason why we need Jesus. And that's what I want to cover today. Um, I would dare say, mere Christianity started out as a ra radio addresses. And he would just tell these things on the radio, and then they kind of put it, compiled it into a book. Mere Christianity is four books come together. And usually, when you track down a quote from mere Christianity, it's very rarely in book one. And most of us jump to book three, book four, where the, the great quotes are that we, we quote so frequently. But today, we're going to focus in book one because I want you to understand why he was a Christian. There is such a wonderful story in what was the conclusion he came to. This is why we need Christ. And that's Mere Christ Christianity, book one. So let's turn to chapter one. Mere Christianity, book one, chapter one. He made two observations that are absolutely brilliant, life-changing observations. Come on.
There we go. Let me just let him set this up. I'll read a little bit. You follow along. Everyone has heard people quarreling. I want you to think about the last time you heard someone complain. I picked up my daughter from work today, and all I heard on the way home was complaints about her manager. Now, if you listen to people complain, everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny, and sometimes it, found, it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kind of things they say. Now, let me pause and let me bring my daughter up, okay? She has a horrible manager, and she complained the whole time home about the manager. Now, guess what everything my daughter complained about boiled down to? She shouldn't do that. My manager should not do that. Now, do you think there is anywhere in any handbook, in any manual written that she shouldn't do the things my daughter was complaining she shouldn't do? No handbook at that business addressed any of that. But she shouldn't do that. She hired her boyfriend's friend. She shouldn't do that. And here's the things that you're going to people, hear people say. How'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated people and children as well as grow up, grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all of these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior doesn't happen to please him, right? My daughter doesn't say, I don't like it when she does this. What is my daughter saying? She shouldn't. Which suggests what? It's not a matter of preference. It's a matter of there is this intrinsic moral law written into all of us that every single one of this have this instinct to do what's right. My daughter was assuming that her manager should know better, right? Now, how should her manager know better? Because we all instinctively know what we should be doing. C.S. Lewis says, he is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which expects the other man, that, which he expects the other man to know about. So C.S. Lewis came to a conclusion that there is inside all of us a moral law, an absolute right and every one of us instinctively knows it. Every culture may vary on how they adapt it, but at the heart of every culture, at the heart of every law, is this moral code we have inside of us that expects us to behave in a certain way. He says, let me put it this way. Every man is at every moment subjected to several different sets of law. 
but there is only one of these he is free to disobey. In the end, he says, the law which is peculiar to his human nature, the law he does not share with animals or vegetables or inorganic things, is the one he can disobey if he chooses. We have a moral code inside of us. C.S. Lewis came to believe, he doesn't really come out and say this, but he sees this as the greatest evidence that there is a God. Is that there is something inside every one of us that says, she shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. And that that behavior is expected because we're all supposed to know it because we all have this idea built inside of us. Every single time I ride tracks and there's an elderly lady that gets on and I'm sitting. There is no sign anywhere that says anything, but what does every fiber of my being say to me? You should give her your seat. There is a moral code inside of us, inside of every living being. Now, the other conclusion he came to is None of us live up to it. That's the dilemma. Every one of us have this intrinsic moral code inside of us that says I should do what's right, but none of us fully live up to it. And therein was his dilemma. Why do we have this code inside of us that says that I should do certain things, I should act certain ways, and this behavior is right, and that behavior is not right? There has to be a source. There has to be a reason why I have a moral code. And then the other thing he observed is, guess what? We don't live up to it. So do you see the challenge we're facing? He says in the, bottom, the, the end of chapter one, these then are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not in fact behave in that way. They know the law of nature and they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. Now, I love, ask Heavenly Father if it's true, get a witness, now I have a testimony. I love that. But do you see the struggle where he came? I, I've got a problem here. And Christ was the only solution that makes any sense to this problem. Every human being has a moral code inside of us saying we should behave a certain way. And yet none of us do. We all break it. Now, let's get to his conclusions. I love chapter two, chapter three. They're great, but I want to get to his conclusions. Maybe just a couple quotations along the way. I love this one. Strictly speaking, there are no such things as good and bad impulses. 
Like some people will say, well, our moral code is our simply our herd instinct. That's the argument, that our moral code is our herd instinct. But he makes the argument that that can't be because we all have instincts, but this moral code tells us when to suppress one and not the other. There has to be something greater than our instincts. So he says there are no such good, there's no such thing as good and bad impulses. Think, of, think once again of a piano. It has not got two kinds of notes. It doesn't have right notes and wrong notes. Every single note is right at one time and wrong at another. The moral law is not any one instinct or set of instincts. It is something which makes a kind of tune, the tune we call goodness and right, conducted by directing the instincts. My moral code tells me when I'm eating too much. When that's a bad thing to do. Now that's a brilliant conclusion. This is just a man thinking, a man observing human nature. I love this one. He says, the most dangerous thing you can do to is to take any one of your impulses of, of your own nature and set it up as the thing you ought to follow at all costs. There is not one of them which will not make us into devils if we set it up as an absolute guide. Do you see the difference between instincts and the moral law? You have to have a moral law that tells these where they get off. Okay, let's jump to, um, let's jump to chapter four. Um, no, let's jump to chapter five. I'm just going to read most of this because I just, knowing how he found Christ and how he found a solution to this dilemma is one of the most brilliant things he taught me. I ended my, my last chapter with the idea that the moral law, that in the moral law, somebody or something from a beyond the material universe was actually getting at us. And I expect when I reached that point, some of you felt a certain annoyance. You may even have thought that I played a trick on you, that I had been carefully wrapping up to look like philosophy what turns out to be one more religious jaw. You, have, you may have felt that you were ready to listen to me as long as you thought I, I had anything new to say. But if it turns out to be only religion, well, the world has tried that and you cannot put the clock back. If anyone is feeling that way, I should share three things with them. First, I'll skip the first one. Let's go to the second one. Secondly, this has not yet turned into religious jaw. We have not yet got as far as the God of any actual religion, still less the God of that particular religion called Christianity. We have only got as far as somebody or something behind the moral law. We are not taking anything from the Bible or the churches. We are trying to see what we can find out about this somebody on our own steam. You can find God simply by examining yourself. And I want to make it quite clear that what we find out on our own steam is something that gives us a shock. We have two bits of evidence about the somebody. One is the universe he has made. If we use that as our only clue, then I think we should have to conclude that he, has, he was a great artist. 
for the universe is very beautiful place, but also that he is quite merciless and no friend to man. For the universe is a very dangerous and terrifying place. The other bit of evidence is that the moral law which he has put into our minds, and this is a better bit of evidence than the other because it is inside, inside information. You find out more about God from the moral law than from the universe in, ge in general, just as you find out more about a man by listening to his conversation than by looking at a house he has built. Now, from this second bit of evidence, we conclude that the being behind the universe is intensely interested in right conduct. It was his own gut instinct that taught him that. The being behind the universe is inst instinctly interested in right conduct, in fair play, unselfishness, courage, good faith, honesty, and truthfulness. In that sense, we should agree with the account given by, the, by Christianity and some other religions that God is good. But do not let us go too fast here. The moral law does not give us any ground for thinking that God is good in the sense of being indulgent or soft or sympathetic. There is nothing indulgent about the moral law. It is, a, it is as hard as nails. It tells you to do the straight thing, and it does not seem to care how painful or dangerous or difficult it is to do. If God is like the moral law, then he is not soft. It is no use at this stage saying what you mean by a good God is a God who can forgive. You are going too quickly. One, only a person who can, only a person can forgive. And we have not yet got as far as a personal God, only as far as a power behind the moral law and more like a mind than it is like anything else. But it still may be very unlike a person. It is a pure, impersonal mind. There may be no sense in asking it to make allowances for you or let you off, or just as there is no sense in asking the multiplication table to let you off when you do your sums wrong. You are bound to get the wrong answer. It is no use either saying that if there is a God of that sort, an impersonal absolute goodness, then you do not like him and are not going to bother about him. For the trouble is that one part of you is on his side and really agrees with his disapproval of human greed and trickery and exploitation. You may want him to make an exception in your own case and let you off this one time, but you know at bottom that unless that power behind the world really and unalterably detests that sort of behavior, he cannot be good. On the other hand, we know that there does exist an absolute goodness. No, sorry. If there does, an absolute, if there does exist an absolute goodness, it must hate most of what we do. There is the terrible fix we are in. Now, do you begin to see the underpinnings of the big scary lion coming and kneeling before Aslan to drink from the stream? Do you see where he got these conclusions? If there exists an absolute goodness, it must hate most of what we do. This is the terrible fix we are in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all of our efforts in the long run are hopeless.
But if it is, then we are making ourselves enemy to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. And so our case is hopeless. Now, do you see where he's going? Do you see the conclusions he's come to on his own? There is an absolute goodness, and yet we don't live up to it. Now, do you understand what's going to fill that void? And where he's going to see, I, you see where he's going? Let me read that again. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all of our efforts in the long run are hopeless. If it is, then we are making ourselves enemy to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. And so our case is hopeless again. We cannot do without it. And we cannot do with it. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror. The thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally. And we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of an absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger. According to the way you react to it, and we have reacted, and we have reacted the wrong way. Now my third point. When I chose to get it to my real subject in this roundabout way, I was not trying to play any kind of trick on you. I had a different reason. My reason is that Christianity simply does not make sense until you have faced the sort of facts I have been describing. You cannot understand why there's an atonement until you understand why you need one. If you don't understand the dilemma we're in and why I need an atonement, you'll never appreciate Christ or Christianity. Christianity simply does not make sense until you have faced the sort of facts I have been describing. Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know they, do, they have done nothing, they have done anything to repent of, and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law, and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power, it is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. When you know you are sick, you listen to the doctor. When you have realized that our position is nearly desperate, you will begin to understand what the Christians are talking about. They offer an explanation of how we got into our present state of both ha hating goodness and loving it. 
They offer an explanation of how God can be this impersonal mind at the back of the moral law and yet also a person. Can I pause? What, is, what does this mean? They offer. How's he speaking? Not as one of them. He's trying to be as neutral, and I'm not, I'm not trying to show my bias here, and, oh, I like this religion, so you should like it too. He's trying to say, look, I'm trying to be as neutral and observer as possible and showing you that Christianity is the only thing that makes sense to me. He's calling them they, they, Christianity offers an explanation. He is not part of them yet. I think that's significant. They tell you how the demands of this law, which you and I cannot meet, have been met on our behalf. How God himself becomes a man to save man from the disapproval of God. It is an old story, and if you want to go into it, you will no doubt consult people who have more authority to talk about it than I have. All I am doing is to ask people to face the facts, to understand the questions which Christianity claims to answer. And they are very terrifying facts. I wish, I, I wish it was possible to say something more agreeable, but I must say what I think true. Of course, I quite agree that the Christian religion is in the long run a thing of unspeakable comfort, but it does not begin in comfort. It begins in the dismay I have been describing, and it is no use at all trying to go on on that comfort without first going through that dismay. In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. Now, I worry that a lot of people, when they come to religion, are looking for comfort. But the reality is, if you don't understand the mess we're in, You'll never understand the source of that comfort. There is a moral law, and we break it. Now what's the solution? A redeemer. The only solution is a redeemer. And that was C.S. Lewis's conversion to Christianity. And it came from that painful struggle that, wait a minute, that there's a moral lie inside me and I break it all the time. So what's the solution? And his conclusion was, I need Jesus. He sought for truth and found comfort. He didn't seek for comfort.
Do you see how he approached it? He came from the side of, let's, let's own the discomfort. And now we can turn to, why do we love Christ? First, why do I need him? And then, why do I love him? Do you see where we're going to go in the next couple of books? Now, if you want to read ahead, we will do a little bit in book two, but we're mostly going to book three. Book three is where we start to list what is it that Christ asks us to do. And then book four is, what it, where is he taking us? Where is he ultimately taking us? So if you want to read ahead, read two and three and maybe get into a little bit of book four and mere Christianity.